0: Thank you, Amy. All of Jesus I surrender. A great old hymn still full of marvelous truth for today. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker, and let's uh, spend some time in the Word today. Right now, though, if you've got a little one up through grade four, you'd like for them to be in an age-appropriate service during this service, you can have them dismissed to the foyer right now. And their teachers will pick them up and take them down. Just follow the herd. For the rest of you, just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you would. If you're a guest here today, it's your first time, or it's been a while since you've been here, we welcome you. If you're a college student just coming back, we welcome you. We've missed you. We're glad that you're here, and uh, may today be a time when you're refreshed in the Word of God. We are in a continuing study, God's plan for a healthy church. It's a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. Conduct in the church really is where Paul is now as we've tracked our way through this marvelous letter to the Corinthians. Spiritual gifts is his topic and the more excellent way. We're really in the middle of this section of Paul's letter to the church that deals with conduct in the church. It is a, a very important section for us as we deal with uh, these things which have plagued the church all along. We can see these things in corrective or perhaps uh, keep us from going astray, but these things are, are very important for the church even today. It's really, fit Paul's, if you're tracking with us, Paul's fifth outline point, the love of the Spirit, really begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. It goes all the way through chapter 13, verse 13. There are no shortage of love songs and love poems and movies about love. We love to love them. We love to hate them. But really, since just after creation, they've been around. Most of them center around romantic love or feelings of some kind or an emotion. Just a few examples from Billboard's top 50 love songs. Billboard, of course, is Radio Airplay and purchases of the song. So these may or may not have made it into your, into your playlist. Number 48 of all time, Baby Love by the Supremes. Number one, four weeks in a row, 1964. Number 45, and this really is a commentary, I think, on, on uh, the world's love. You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Righteous Brothers, number one, two weeks in a row, 1965, of course, had a big comeback during the movie Top Gun. I'm sure it made its way onto playlists all over the world. Number 38, I Just Called to Say I Love You, Stevie Wonder, number one for three weeks in a row in 1984. Number 37, Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston, number one for three weeks in a row in 1986, and of course, according to Whitney in that song, the greatest love of all is what? Learning to Love Yourself, which seems interesting in light of our topic of self-sacrificing love, which is real love as the Bible defines it. Number 30 of, of all time was Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It? Number one for three weeks, 1984. Number 24 of all time, Captain Antonil, Love Will Keep Us Together. Number one, four weeks in a row, 1975. Number 22, Beyonce, Crazy in Love, which was number one for eight weeks in a row in 2003. Number six of all time, Whitney Houston made the chart again, I Will Always Love You. And unfortunately, I will never get that tune out of my head. I've heard it so many times. Number four, for 14 weeks in a row, number one, 1992. Number three, Rihanna, We Found Love, number one for 10 weeks in a row in 2011. Number one love song of all time, according to Billboard magazine, was Endless Love by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie, number one, nine weeks in a row, 1981. Now, if you didn't hear your favorite love song in that group, it may have been there and we skipped over it for time, or I may not have been able to say it, so it's just one of those deals where you can only say so many things in church, and we could arguably say that the world thinks it's the most important thing, or at least it's right at the top of the most important things, with a variety of definitions, of course, that qualify that, and those definitions, of course, are based on emotion and feeling, but that isn't the love we're talking about here. We could certainly say that the scriptures, at least at this point as we've looked through them, deem it the most important thing of all from God's perspective. It's the most important thing in the church, as we're going to see today. And as opposed to the definitions and descriptions of the world, biblical love is based on will. To love somebody in terms of an act of self-sacrifice, which we saw last week is really the definition of love, is not a feeling. It's a determination that you make in your mind. In other words, this is what God has told me to do. So this is what I'm going to do. Now John says in John 13, 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now Peter says, in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all things, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. So, not only is it the indicating factor in Christianity, uh, we're supposed to enthusiastically and zealously pursue it to cover over the sins of others against us. It's a volitional act. And Paul says, I'm showing you a more excellent way, and the path of this whole plan of the church, ministering for the common good, is this way, this pathway, if you will, of love. And no matter where you stop in the scripture, it's the same story. It's the same process. We have to do the work of God, God's way. When we're talking about love, that's what we're talking about. Love is an act of humility. I want to meet your need. I want to do what God wants me to do. There's no self-seeking there. There's no pride there. There's no selfishness there. There's no self-glory. There's no vanity there. And just think about what could happen to a church where everyone begins to embrace that kind of principle. That's how they're going to minister inside the church. That's how they're going to uh, interact with other people inside the church. That type of principle where you kept fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. See, Where you love one another even as Jesus loved you, that you also love one another. See, And that would be the qualification for how you're loving. Not the least, what's the minimum you'll accept, but how Jesus has loved you. And that's how you express it to someone else. Because you know what, you know, as you think about ministry in the church, which is really what we're talking about here as we talk about spiritual gifts. As you think about ministry in the church... Uh, You can refrain from ministering because you've been heard or underappreciated and you've withdrawn yourself from ministering your spiritual gifts inside the church for that reason. You can refrain from ministering because you have mismanaged your time and your priorities and so you just don't have time to plug in. And you can use that as a reason why you don't minister. Or you can minister your gifts in the church in pride and you can minister your spiritual gifts so that someone will notice that you're doing it and you can do your spiritual gifts inside the church for your own glory. You can minister your gifts because someone coerced you into doing it. Or because you want to fit in somehow. And you, don't, you just want to do what everybody else is doing. Or because you think you're the only one who can do it right. So you're the one who's going to do it. So you just plug yourself in because you're the only one who can do it correctly. So there's a lot of reasons we could give for ministering or not ministering or whatever. And how you're doing it. But there's really only two ways that really count. And one is Attitude. We looked at this, and this really ties us back together with Bema Seat Judgment and how God uh, evaluates what we do with what we have and and in the time that we've had since we've been born again. There's two things that count, really, attitude, and that is, I minister because I have been equipped to do it. I'm part of the body, and there's something wrong with the body if some part doesn't work like it's supposed to. All right, So that's your first attitude as you think about that. It's, It's as you approach ministry whether or not you've refrained from it or whether you're doing it for some other reason. Number one, I minister because I've been equipped to do it. I'm part of the body, and there's something wrong with the body if some part doesn't work like it's supposed to. Just look at your own body and find out those issues and areas where you have trouble. And number two is action. And that is, in my ministry, I will do it out of the sacrifice of myself to the will of God, and that is the sacrifice of my time and my priorities to the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the action of love, beloved. That's the action of love. And those are the only two valid reasons, see. Nothing else really matters. Nothing else counts. Nothing else builds on the spiritual foundation that Christ has laid with gold, silver, and costly stone besides that, see. And that's why Paul ends the section in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and he says, comparing faith, hope, and love, he says, but the greatest of these is love. Now, as you think about that, and as you think about last week, And if you weren't with us last week, just check in online, BereanJourney.org, and you you can listen and catch up on the message series, particularly this section that has to do with conduct in the church. But a few questions, perhaps, as we went through last week and defined love and went through a number of things, a few questions can come up, and I want to address one or two of them just before we start these first three verses today. And maybe after what we've talked about, you're thinking... How can I ever get to the place where I have that kind of will, where I'll actually do acts of self-sacrifice and ministry for people who are either deserving or undeserving? Somebody you care about, somebody you don't care about, somebody who cares about you, somebody who doesn't care about you, and do an act of self-sacrificing service on their behalf. How can I ever get to the point where I'll really do that? See, it's very hard to identify... If that's actually the reason, you're the only one who's going to know that. I don't know how you hook up with this, and you don't know how I hook up with this, but you may be thinking in your mind, I mean, if you think about love in a self-sacrificing way for people who don't even care about you, and as we saw last time, even people who are your enemies, Jesus just qualifies and says, if you really want to know what it looks like, it's going to be self-sacrificing service to someone, perhaps even your enemy. But certainly if people don't care about you, you don't get along, they talk about you, you have a problem with them, whatever, you were hurt, you were offended, they were offended, whatever it is. How can I ever get to the point where everything else is aside, and I'm just going to do this out of a pure act of love, a self-sacrifice on their their part? Because, beloved, this is the only way inside the church that spiritual gifts are supposed to work, okay? It's the only way they can work as God would have them to work. So you may have that question, how can I ever get to that point? Well, here's the thing, and you've heard me say this before, one thing you can't do is you can't just pull it out of your hat, okay? You're not going to be able to say one day, you know, um, I've been a real pill up until now. Really selfish and self-centered and critical. But today, it's going to be different. Today, I'm going to love someone. In fact, I'm feeling particularly magnanimous, so today I'm going to love everyone. All right? You're not going to wake up in the morning and just say, you know, this is what's going to happen. You know, you're going to look at your inspirational calendar, and you're going to read a few Bible verses, and you're going to go out and really love. Okay. That's not the ticket. You're not going to be able to do it that way. You can't whip it out of your hat. What you can do, though, To get to the point where you will have the kind of will where you'll actually do acts of self-sacrifice and ministry for people is you're going to have to walk in the spirit according to ephesians 5 18 that means you're going to need to turn your life over to the spirit's control and that means you're going to have to spend regular quality time in the word of god which will lead you to regularly confess your sin as you compare your life with a holy standard so it, it takes away the emphasis off of you and somehow that you're at the peak of that spirituality and you have that holy standard you're interacting with constantly and you're saying, okay, I recognize that I fail in a whole bunch of areas. And it's also really helpful for forgiveness when you realize you, forgive in a lot, when you fail in a lot of areas. And that's going to lead you to prayer and praise and committing passages to memory and all the things that we talk about as we talk about reading the Word of God. And that will lead you to begin to allow the Spirit of God to govern your thought patterns. See, that's the issue. If it's going to be an act of will, you've got to say, okay, this is, you know, I've been equipped to do this. I'm part of the body. There's something wrong with the body. If the body doesn't work like it's supposed to, and in my ministry, I'm going to do this out of the sacrifice of myself to the will of God. It's a sacrifice of my time, a sacrifice of my priorities, you know, that, that to the needs of other brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're going to get to that point, you're going to have to have the Spirit of God governing your thought patterns. Otherwise, you're never going to get to that point. And that's the essence of turning control of your life Over to the Spirit of God. As the Spirit of God begins to control you, he produces then the fruit of that control. And the fruit of that control, the first one, is love. And love will only come that way. So to clarify, this isn't some self-righteous determination in your own mind. Today I'm going to love. Today it's going to happen. It is a volitional response, however, in that you're going to have to yield your life to the Spirit of God, and say, as you spend time in the word, Holy Spirit, control me today, take over my life, live through me based on my time in your word, and then the fruit of the Spirit will be there, and that's love, to be applied to your service to other people. That's how that's going to work. You're not going to pull that out of your hat and just decide, I'm not going to be nasty today, I'm going to be loving, or I'm not going to be critical of someone today, I'm going to be kind and do acts of kindness. I'm not going to examine them with a microscope and said, I'm going to let love cover a multitude of sins. I'm not going to hold on to whatever hurt I perceived from someone else or whatever it was. Instead, I'm going to respond in acts of obedience, in helping them and encouraging them, or what administering to them and showing them mercy, whatever it is. See. But you, the Holy Spirit's going to have to be in control of your thought process, and for that to happen, you're going to have to spend regular time in the Word of God and have interaction in the Word, not just... You know, quantity, but quality time, as we've talked about many times, as I encourage you constantly to be in the Word and give you a calendar to do that. That is a quality time in the Word where you're interacting with the Word as you're going through it and you're praying. And you, when you see a praise, you give God praise for it. When you see a command, you evaluate your life and say, How am I doing on this? I need more help on this. Lord, thank you for helping me uh, uh, to conquer some of these areas in my life, whatever that is. See, a regular interaction between you and the Father, which begins to displace old thought processes and replace them with new thought processes. See. Now, as you think about that then, as you think about love, we need some definitions. We need to understand if love is so important and we can't do anything without love and we're to love like Jesus loved and it's the main way people can tell we're believers and and we are to above anything else we should be doing or could be doing around the church to fervently pursue the expression of love to one another in order to forgive offenses... And the Holy Spirit will produce love as we yield ourselves to him through his word. And if it's the more excellent way and spiritual gifts uh, are functioning in the flesh apart from deeds of love and we can't minister any gifts without love and we're supposed to abound in it and continue in it and be sincere and provoke one another to it and we can only be noise without love and we're going to be nothing without love, could you tell us what love is? How can I identify it in my life? And that is precisely the reason why Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is the hinge between 1 Corinthians 12 and conduct in the church and spiritual gifts and 1 Corinthians 14 where he specifically identifies some things that are being misused in the church and corrects that action. But apart from any of that other stuff, it has to be done in love. Now let's read 1 Corinthians 13, 1-13, as is our habit, and we will begin this process of going through these first couple of verses. Verse 1 If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2 If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. Verse 3 And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Verse 4 Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Verse 6 does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 7 bears all things. And just read love in there silent. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Verse 8, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Verse 13, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now there's a description of love. You don't see anything subjective. You didn't see anything abstract there. You don't see anything in terms of ideology there. You only saw things in terms of behavior. You're able to see really 15 behaviors that make up the reality of love, love in action. And I like it that Paul uses... Himself as an example. If I speak, Paul says. So there's no singling anybody out in the church in Corinth. He's just saying, if I speak. So I'll just use myself, Paul says. Uh, But if you read it, you immediately get pulled into the narrative, don't you? If I speak. And that's what I want you to do today. I want you to get pulled into this narrative. Because Paul is going to use hypothetical possibilities. And I'm sure you picked up on that. He's using really overstatement, or hyperbole, if you will, To make his point. He wants them to know that no matter how great their gifting may be, it doesn't matter if love isn't there. And so he's just going to go to the greatest possible gifting possibility and then say, even if it's here, it doesn't matter if love isn't present. Okay? Now look at verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, it appears... Stop right there. It appears that Paul's first stop... Is on the gifting that the Corinthians valued very, very highly. Okay? And they were using their gifts for attention and for self exaltation. Those who had upfront kinds of gifts were putting themselves on display, which really prompted the entire dialogue because somebody, some people wrote to Paul and perhaps came to Paul and said, listen, lots of this stuff is going on. How do we identify if it's spiritual or not? And how do we know what's supposed to happen in the church? So Paul begins to address this. So obviously that's going on. And we were going to, as, as we will see also, they were. Imitating the gift with ecstatic speech and so they just want some clarification so Paul begins to do that and clarify the true Gift when he says the tongues now what he says when I speak with the tongues It's the Greek noun taste glossace. It has the article so when you see that noun you should think languages We're not talking about ecstatic speech here Paul clarifies it if I speak with the tongues Now the clarification and the expression is really general enough to cover Any kind of speech, so whatever it is that gets said, in other words, it could be that general. But I think it's very difficult to understand it to mean anything besides the spiritual gift of tongues. That's what Paul's speaking about here. That seems to be the problem in the church, and so Paul directs his attention to it. So Paul overstates it, and he says, even if a person, so catch this, even if a person could speak in all the languages, human and angelic. Now, just a little footnote, and I've said this before, and I think you can understand this. The tongues of angels may be figurative for exalted speech. You know, like a clear, authoritative, concise, convincing type of speech, like an angel. When he shows up, everybody gets everybody's attention, and he speaks in a very concisely concise manner, and everybody understands what he says, and all that stuff. We may be talking about that. But what it doesn't mean is an unknown language. Why can we say that? Well, because whenever angels spoke to men in the Bible, what language did they use? And don't say the King James, okay? They used human language. Okay? They used human language. It was the common speech. What was easily understood. That's the language that they used. So, now, we looked at this before when we went through the gifts of the Spirit, but I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Will you do that? Acts chapter 2. Just quickly, you can hold your place here. We'll be back. This is the day of Pentecost. One of three annual feasts. The Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. Pentecost actually means 50th. 50 days after Passover. Passover. And they would come and they would offer the first fruits of the harvest that had been uh, made, beginning, been made there. And so God uses this day, it's very interesting, uh, to give the first fruits of the Holy Spirit 50 days after Passover. So this is, a fulfilled, uh, this is a fulfilled feast day. And the Lord has done that as he's gone along, give the Israelites feast days and then fulfilled them in the New Testament. And there's still some out there still to be fulfilled. But anyway, that's, that's the background. It's the day of Pentecost. The day that Jesus had told them to wait for when, where the Holy Spirit would be given, about seven days after Jesus ascends to heaven. Fifty days after Passover when Jesus is crucified, about seven days after he ascends to heaven. Now, verse 1 says this. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And I talk about the disciples, verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Now, at this point, the Holy Spirit had not been given to reside in men, okay? So, men and women. So, this is the beginning of that. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Now, pause right there. This is the term that Paul refers to in general in 1 Corinthians 13.1. This is the word glaces, except here, because it's happening for the first time, Luke is carried along to say Heteras. Glaces, in other words, another language or other language. He wants to clarify as opposed to the one they knew as a child or their heart language. Obviously, as we see in context, it was a language that everyone knew that the disciples didn't know. Okay, So we obviously see that this is a spiritual gift of tongues. This is an ability to speak a known language, one that you don't know, that you haven't studied, but you're able to speak in this language. Spiritual gift, and we've talked about why that was given. I'll just remind you that in just a second. But, so that's what's going on, and Luke makes it clear. Paul's referring to the same thing. So he says this, verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other, with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So this is the Spirit involved in this spiritual gift. Verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Again, it's a known language, unknown to the speaker, but known to the hearer. And each one is hearing, so the disciples are going out and they're speaking in these tongues, and these are known languages, but they don't know them, the disciples don't know them, but people who are there hear them and understand them. Okay? So it's not ecstatic utterance, it's not some angel language as defined today that nobody understands except the Lord. Okay? This is an actual physical language. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And these men are all from the same place. How do they know all these languages? And all these people, of course, are here for this feast, this first uh, fruits feast, Feast of Harvest. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, just giving a cross-section of all the Jews who have gathered here for the feast day, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, verse 2, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, verse 11, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Verse 12, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? You can turn back to 1 Corinthians if you would. Well, it meant that the Holy Spirit was coming in Jesus' place, just like he said he was going to, and going to work in the church. And this is the beginning. And this temporary sign gift was given as a sign of judgment to the Jews and to verify the messenger and the message As we saw at length before, and you can come back and check that online and get caught up. So Paul takes it to its fullest possible extent then. If you know all the languages of the earth, and you know how to speak them like an angel would speak them, with authority and with power and conciseness, but use this ability, but you are not using this ability in a self-sacrificing way, so you can do all this stuff, but you don't use the ability in a self-sacrificing way, it'd be no more profitable and no more pleasant than the clanging and jangling sounds of metal crashing against each other. You may be concise like an angel, have the authority to speak like an angel, and you may have the gift of tongues that allows you to speak in every known human language so that everybody could hear, and you do it without love. It's no better than the clanging and jangling sounds of metal crashing against each other. All the gifts are going to be used for the common good, and this foreshadows chapter 14 a little bit. But where there the spoken word is done for its own benefit or to magnify the speaker, and it's not understood and helpful to the church, that's not loving. And Paul's going to make that clear in verse 4, chapter 14. There's no profit. It's just nerve-wracking din, contributing nothing to the common good, and we're going to see that in chapter 14. For tongues to be beneficial, they must be interpreted, and even then, what's said must be edifying. And So Paul's going to, he's laying the foundation, though, even if you could do all of it, and you could do it clearly like an angel would do it, it wouldn't matter if you didn't have love. It'd be like somebody banging a bunch of symbols together, just annoying everybody else. So Paul starts the instruction off with this amazing statement. Do you think you're eloquent? You think you're great because you can speak one of the languages of men that you didn't know before? Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He ties it all back to the most excellent way that he's telling them about, see? The way everything must be done in the church for it to matter. If you have all that spirit-given ability, but you don't minister it in a self-sacrificing way for the common good, you really can do nothing. There's no prophet. The best speech of earth or heaven without love is only noise. Then he says, look at verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but don't have love, I am nothing. Let's, Let's break that one apart. So Paul's just carried along to mention wisdom, spiritual gift of wisdom, spiritual gift of knowledge, spiritual gift of faith. You remember chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. Just turn back there really quickly. Ch- chapter 12, verse 7. He mentions a lot of these things. And Paul's kind of bringing some of these gifts in. You know, if you have these gifts, these are important gifts. They're beneficial to the church. They're clear. They, they form really the heart of what goes on in the church. The, the wisdom and knowledge and faith and those things. Very important. Always important in edifying the church, building up the church, uh, instructing the church. So these things have always been a part of the church ministry. And First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Remember this? In verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Remember this? Verse 9, to another faith by the same spirit and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit and verse 10, and to another effecting of miracles and to another prophecy and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues. And then later, he recognizes some offices in the church during that first century in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty nine, Look there, all are not apostles, are they? And the answer is no. All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? No. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No. Not everybody has those gifts. So Paul isn't minimizing the importance of the gifts when he uses them in 1 Corinthians 13. He's not saying these are not important, okay? And like he's going to later with tongues, he's going to say that is not as important as you think it is, and you're using it wrong, and this is what's going to have to happen if you want to continue to use it. But these, he's not minimizing these gifts at all. He just kind of takes a cross-section out of these very important gifts and offices in the church, ones the Corinthian believers should have been very familiar with. And he says in verse 2, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. Now, we looked at this before, so just quickly, the gift of prophecy, uh, Greek noun, prophetia, it's, it's a spirit-empowered gift, speaking forth, proclaiming publicly the truths of God, a spirit-inspired speech for edification, exhortation, consolation, a real gift used in the church. It's obviously a speaking gift. It would appear to be a permanent edifying gift. There's also the elements of predictive prophecy and new revelation, and understanding that part of the spiritual gift of prophecy has to be included in our understanding of the gift, particularly in the first century application to verify the message and the messenger. And then we see wisdom, Sophia, the application of facts. We looked at that before, a spiritual gift that directs all things to the best end. Wisdom is the spiritual gift, it's the ability to articulate and apply knowledge and spiritual insight gained from the scriptures to believers in order to know right from wrong and what to do in a particular situation. God gives that spiritual gift in the church. You know people who are like that. These are the people you go to. You've got an issue. You've got a problem. You want to bounce something off of them, and you know what they're going to say. is going to be wise, and it's going to take the facts in and the knowledge that you've given them of the, of the issue, and they can put all that together and apply it. It's very important in the church. It's a benefit. All of us have been benefited by that. And then knowledge, a spiritual gift, gnosis. It is the facts, someone the Lord has uh, given the ability to to know the end and the issues involved, uh, a spiritual gift, so that they may understand the facts of scripture, the ability to know the truths of scripture broadly and deeply, comprehensive understanding of the scripture, you're tying the stuff together, and it it, it becomes clear as somebody points it out to you because they have that spiritual gift, and it manifests itself in teaching and training and explaining and passing on those truths. The Spirit gives those gifts to articulate those things clearly. And then faith, of course, the noun pistis translated assurance and trust and believe in other parts of scripture. A gift to believers that uh, creates a a consistent enabling faith that truly believes God in the face of overwhelming obstacles and and human impossibilities, it doesn't matter because that spiritual gift of faith is there, faith is there, it carries the church through, it may be expressed uh, in prayer initially or at least most effectively, and so again, Paul is overstating these gifts in combination. You you may have received marvelous revelations from God. You might understand the great mysteries from God. You might have been able to know tremendous truths before now, unrevealed, but now made known to you. You might have received great inflow of divine knowledge, supernaturally imparted. You might have epic faith, which is able to remove mountains, just like Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20. Because of the littleness of your faith, you couldn't do this, but I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. That kind of faith. Hebrews 11 kind of faith. Where you get into the hall of faith there because of the faith. Spiritual gift faith that you have so all knowledge points to the sum of, of wisdom, human and divine. It includes knowledge people gather for themselves, what they might know by the gift of the Spirit. Uh, mysteries or truths that people could never find out from themselves. They, they know them only because God has been pleased to reveal them. And faith, of course, is basic to Christianity. It's a special, also a special gift from the Spirit. Faith is what it takes to work miracles. Paul has all faith, so he's taken in every possible combination of faith, whatever it is. He takes all that in, see. And Paul says, this is so, so radical. Okay, if, if you weren't impressed before by all languages and be able to speak with an angels' authority, and you, you accomplish nothing of value without love, you got to be impressed with this. Paul says in verse 2 If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith. So it just takes in this huge path, a swath of of all this spiritual gift and all this blessing to the church and all these positions that the church has had all through the years. He takes them all in. And not only do you have knowledge, you've got all knowledge. And not only do you have wisdom, you've got all wisdom. And not just faith to be saved, but faith to move mountains and faith to do miracles, all faith. It's all just taken in. Remember, he's overstating the case. He's using hyperbole to make this important so they can understand it, okay? And then he ties it all back again to the excellent way the way everything must be done in the church for it to matter. If you have all of that spirit-given ability and gifts that have continued to be important to the church all through history, but you don't minister them in a self-sacrificing way for the common good, you are nothing. That's so radical, isn't it? We are so impressed with a whole bunch of that stuff, aren't we? And yet, if you don't do it in love, and teachers, you know, you should be just as convicted as when I studied this a couple of weeks ago, I was. And this week again. You, can have, you may have all kinds of ability, and you can put it all together. And people come away, and they are enriched. But listen, you are nothing if you're not doing it in a self-sacrificing, loving way in the church. It's just, Paul just kind of cuts it right off. I know you're impressed with all of this, Corinthians. I know you think this is really great and the speaking gifts are most important to you and you're very impressed with somebody gets up and they are a great orator, but I'm telling you that you are nothing if you're not doing this in love. It just kind of sets this marvelous stage. and Then he's going to go through these 15 attributes of love. You want to know what love looks like? These are the things you should be doing. That's love. But he has to set this up. He has to make it important because doing acts of kindness doesn't rank as high as being a good speaker. And doing acts of of, uh, mercy showing is not going to rank as high as you know all languages and you speak like an angel. So he's got to set this stage and say, okay, it doesn't matter what your gifts are. And if you have all the gifts, if you don't minister them correctly, you are nothing and you accomplish nothing. And those are wonderful gifts and the fullest possible amount used only for your own benefit to make you look good or to make people think good of you and they are not being done in a self-sacrificing way for the edifying of other members of the body of Christ. Not only are they not very important, they are of no value and the holder is nothing. No help to anyone. See, that's it. That's how emphatic Paul is. Now look at verse 3. That's it for today. Okay, verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, now, that's just pretty devastating, isn't it? I mean, a lot of us just might wrap ourselves up in what we can do, right? And, and instead of who we are and what it looks like on the inside and what our attitudes are, see? If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Let's look at this one. Now we're taking in a couple of other spiritual gifts, and these are... You know, these are the lifeblood of the church. I mean, these are the things that pump through all all of all the veins and arteries. This is what makes it work. This is the gift of giving, this is the gift of helps, of service, of mercy showing. All these are ones that he's taken in now, kind of in a big a big swath. You know, giving is a direct response to the material ministry of giving food and clothing and money and houses and material goods in response to the needs of the church. Everybody's supposed to give, and we're gonna see that in just a minute. But God has given special gifting of giving to some people. He's provided the resources and they They don't hold on to them. They pass them right along. And helps, that's the ability from the Spirit to give aid in time of need or bear one another's burdens as a situation arises. Now Galatians says you're supposed to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But the bottom line is this. Everybody's supposed to do it, but the Holy Spirit empowers some to really know what to do. Have you ever met people like that? They just walk into whatever situation it is. It doesn't matter how chaotic and whatever they start to do, that is exactly what needed to be done. You know people like this. They just have that spiritual gift ability. There are people here who do this. In service, it's working for the body of Christ in areas of physical ministry. And everybody's supposed to serve one another. We're supposed to, to submit ourselves to one another in service. And, and deacons, are the, they are the example in the church office of service to the church. And making sure things work like they should. But this is a spiritual gift as well, working for the body of Christ in areas of physical ministry, and they just pick it up and they just do it, whatever it is. And mercy showing, that's the ability to show a deep concern, a compassion, and empathy for those who have spiritual, physical, and emotional needs. And we're all supposed to show mercy, and in the proportion that we show mercy, we get it. And some of us don't have a great an emphasis on mercy, maybe don't have that spiritual gift, but we're supposed to show mercy. But some have that spiritual empowerment, and that's what they do. And once again, Paul is overemphasizing the gifts. Not just some of your possessions, all of them, not just a living sacrifice, but martyrdom. Okay, so overemphasizing, hyperbole. Here it is. Not just some of your possessions, you're going to give all of them away. Not just uh, uh, bringing yourself as a living sacrifice, but actually giving your life away, see? And once again from last week, you know, keep in mind, it's possible to look spiritual but not be spiritual. That was the point of the, of the whole dialogue from Paul here. That's the whole question that the Corinthians had. They look spiritual. Are they spiritual? How will we know if they are spiritual? And so Paul begins to, he continues to build on that. It's possible to look spiritual, but not be spiritual. It's possible to let spiritual gifts function from the flesh. And that's the potential in these three verses. That's exactly what he's talking about, right? It's possible, Paul says in verses 1 through 3, to appear to be functioning in the Spirit, but actually be functioning in the flesh. Because if the Holy, Holy Spirit's gifts are not functioning in love, then that's exactly what they're doing. They're functioning in the flesh. And You know, the Lord's attention is on those who give. I mean, he... He encourages that, and sacrificial giving, and sharing in general, have always been a concern to God. And I I believe he uses those who have need to teach us to express love in action, in a very tangible way. He knows where your affections are. You know, and just a couple of illustrations here, and I know you've seen these, and we're going to go back as we get to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and we're going to go through these in, in a very thorough manner as it deals with material things. But just kind of an overview, Matthew 19, 27, talking about a bunch of things here, and they come up to this. And uh, talking about what it looks like to be a disciple, what it looks like to sacrifice, what it looks like to give um, and uh, give yourself away. And then verse 27, Peter says to Jesus, uh, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And verse 28, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration where the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 29, Verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first and i love that last part okay peter's interest, he he wants to know hey we've given up everything we've given up our livelihood our home we've followed you what 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 recompense will there be and jesus isn't shy about it i mean he just says there's big recompense for that and then he says, but many who are first will be last and last first. See, that's the general rule in Scripture, but as with verse 30, things are not always what they seem. It's possible to look spiritual but not be spiritual, see. It's possible to look like you're sacrificing a lot but not really be sacrificing a lot or not doing it in love. So there's a whole kingdom upside down thing going on here. First John three seventeen through 19 Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It doesn't, see. Verse 18, little children let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. That, and that's precisely the definition of love we're confirming, isn't it? So the giving and the mercy showing and the serving, the Lord loves those kind of things. Luke 6, 38, give and it be given to you. They will pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. This is the will of God. Everyone wants to know what the will of God is, right? Well, there it is, See? Uh, there's a place where it's clearly stated. 1 Corinthians 13.3, Paul is talking about very sacrificial giving. Everyone's supposed to give. And Paul's talking about it in 1 Corinthians 13.3, giving everything. Like Jesus told the rich young ruler to do in Matthew 19, sell all your lo- belongings and give to the poor and come and follow me. See? And then you'll have to lay up riches in heaven. So this is a, a complete giving of everything, not just a little bit, see, that Paul's talking about. Psalm 41.1, how blessed is he Who considers the helpless, the Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. So you want to be delivered in trouble, uh, in your day of trouble. Take care of the helpless meet needs. Verse 2, the Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed on the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. So you want to be kept alive, you want to be called blessed on the earth, you want to be delivered from your enemies. What do you have to do? You have to, you have to give. You have to consider the helpless. Make sure people are taken care of. Give of what you have. Just the same, same theme all through scripture. Verse 3. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed and his illness. You'll restore him to health. God's concerned about those who are generous. That's the whole point of the passage. Proverbs 19, 17, One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. He'll repay him for his good deed. The Lord has his eye on those who give. It's, an, it's a thing the Lord has encouraged people to do. It is part of Uh, what it means to be a believer, but Paul makes something completely clear. In verse 3 he says, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And it appears that there's quite a bit of benefit to giving, doesn't it? I mean, I I just skimmed over. Right? I mean... The disciples say, hey, what what recompense is for us? We've given up everything. Jesus is not shy. This is what it looks like. Luke 6, 38. Jesus isn't shy. Give it, it'll be given to you. He takes care of those who are generous. Paul says, listen, you need to clarify something. You may do that. You may give everything to feed the poor. And surrender your body to be burned. But if you don't have love, it profits me nothing. In one comprehensive move, you could sell all you have and give it away to benefit the less fortunate. In one moment, you could pay the ultimate sacrifice of your life for whatever cause there may be. And then he ties that back to the excellent way. The way everything has to be done in the church for it to matter. Paul's sake. It's possible for you to give your material wealth and give up your body to martyrdom and make this spectacular sacrifice and do the entire thing without love. That's the point of verse 3. It's possible to do it without love. That's the reason why he's saying it. And if you do it apart from love, you will have nothing to show for your generosity. All the blessings we just read, you won't have them. Why? Because you've done it apart from love. And those are wonderful gifts in their fullest possible amount used only for you and used only for your own benefit to make you look good or to make people think good of you. You may be moved by dedication or some really high ideal or by pride or by asceticism or whatever it is, see, whatever moves you to do it. It's possible to be moved to do it and love to be absent. And you can fill it in. You may have some other illustrations I I didn't mention. But if they're not done for the edification of other members of the body of Christ, not only are they not very important, They are of no value, and the giver gets no credit. That's devastating, isn't it? And I really don't think, beloved, and maybe you you think I'm making a big deal of it, I'm not sure that I even emphasized it enough. I just did my best to, to, to emphasize the things that appear to be clear to us. I don't think we, you know, I don't think we, we're taking a close enough look at the intense emphasis and the obviously imperative spot love holds in the church. We, I think we can understand these things, I just don't think we do them, see? Because you'll get an opportunity in about eight minutes. I mean, really, as you read the three verses, there's really no illustrations needed. We could have just read them. And they're clear enough. This is the way things are to be done. The highest gifts, the most noteworthy businesses, the most important activities, they're all worth nothing if love is absent. No matter where you stop in Scripture, it's the same story, it's the same process. You have to do God's work God's way, and he's laid it out how it has to be done. And when we're talking about love, that's what we're talking about. Love is an act of humility. I want to meet your need. I want to do what God wants me to do. And I'm not seeking myself here. And there isn't any pride. I'm not trying to draw attention to myself. It's not selfishness. There's no self-glory. There's no vanity, see. And remember, you can't whip it all up out of your hat. You can't turn around right now and walk out and do it, see, if up till now you've just been really a sorehead. You've just been kind of talking about yourself and I mean you've got a position, you do some stuff, but you're not doing it in love and you kind of try to turn around. you haven't been in the word so you don't understand what it's like and your Holy Spirit's not in control of your mind. you're not going to turn around and just whip it out of your hat, see? But at the end of the service here, in just a minute, you know what you can do? you can tell the Lord, you know what I want to begin to walk in the spirit, see? And like Ephesians 5:18, I want your Holy Spirit to control me just like alcohol controls the mind. I want your Holy Spirit to control my mind. I want to turn my life over to your control. And you, that means that you're going to have to say, okay, I want to spend regular quality time in the Word of God. And that's going to help me confess my sins, and I'm going to compare my life to the holy standard, and I'm going to see that I'm not as good as I think I am, but I'm redeemed, and the Lord has set his love on me, and he's given his righteousness to me, but I'm not perfect, and I need to stop being so critical, I need to stop being so evaluating of everybody else, and I need to start acting in love, see, And that's going to lead you to prayer. That's going to lead you to praise and committing passages of Scripture to memory where your difficult parts are, see? And that's going to tend to lend you to begin to allow the Spirit of God to govern your thought process. That's what it's going to have to look like, see? And that's the essence of turning control of your life over to the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God begins to control you, and he produces the fruit of that control. And the first fruit he produces is the fruit of love. And love will only come that way. And all the things we're going to read starting next week about how love acts, they're only going to come out of this process. Okay, So to clarify, it's not some self-righteous determination of your own mind. It's a volitional response and that you must yield your life to the Spirit of God. And when you yield your life to the Spirit of God by immersing yourself in the Word of God and say, Holy Spirit, control me today, take over my life, live through me based on my time in the Word, then the fruit of love will be there to be applied in your service to others, and that's the only way it's going to happen. So, if you've got these questions, how can I do that? That's, how, that's what it's going to look like. That's hard work, see. It's prioritizing your time, in the morning or in the evening, so you're in the Word. And letting the Holy Spirit begin to take control of your thought processes, and put your evaluation of yourself on a little bit lower shelf. And saying, okay, it doesn't matter what I can do, and all these gifts that I have, and that I'm, I, I can speak well, or that I, I can serve well, or that at my Sunday school class, I'm doing a bunch of stuff there, or I serve in the nursery four out of five weeks in a month, those things are less important. They are important, but they're less important than the reason why you do them, because you get no credit for doing them apart from doing them inside love. That's the only way the Spirit of God, working with His fruit of the Spirit, can actually operate as it's supposed to. All right, this bow will be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. A few announcements, and we're going to be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be in your word today. We're so grateful for it. We say that all the time, but it is true. You've magnified your word equal to your own holy name, and we exalt it, and we want to read it, and we want to know what you say and what your thoughts are. And here, just so radical, so devastating, really, for us. And I think these are, it appears, Father, these are the reasons why Paul goes through this. Before he even gets to the acts of love, he just wants us to know just how important those acts are. That apart from them, all the other things we could be doing just all piled up in the most excellent possible manner mean nothing, accomplish nothing. We are nothing apart from doing it in love. And Father, it's just so we we understand this. I mean, above all things, Peter said, put on love covers a multitude of sins. Even if we only started that this week. How much more peace would be in our own home, amongst our friends, amongst our spouse and our children? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Our interacting with each other, the way we talk about one another, the things we do to one another, make it. that's the number one indicator that we belong to you, not anything else. That's the top spot. But Father, thank you for the, just the real radical and devastating passages. Just take in these big swaths of ability given by your Holy Spirit. It can be so beneficial to the church, but are a big zero, apart from the attitude that works its way out in action of love. Help us to put it on, Father. Just make that commitment to be in your word quality time in your word each day, so that you may begin to take control of our thoughts, just like you tell us that you want to do. Just like we see in Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.15 and 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. Help it to dwell in us richly because we spend that time that's needed for that to happen. pray all this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.